Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to Eastlake. We're so glad that you're here in person. For those of you here in person, for those of you watching online uh, or on replay, we get it. We understand it. You're watching football. It's totally fine. Checking on your fantasy teams. We are continuing a conversation uh, on work. We're calling it Making More Than a Living. My wife kicked off the series last week, who was just up here saving my bacon with the Bible, or the child dedications. Um, and uh, it's she crushed it. If you missed last week, it's the most downloaded, most, I'm not trying not to be bitter, but it's the most downloaded, most liked message that we've had in, in a long time. And it does uh, feel like, you know, whenever you see like a court, NFL quarterback get injured and the backup comes in, the backup like lights it up and you're like, dude, that guy's got a lot to worry about. It's a little bit how I feel. So thank you for being here uh, and showing up uh, regardless of that. Um, she started the conversation on work and I've got a quote for us to kind of kick off where we're going with this series and, and um, yeah, just to set the tone for today. This is good whether you're, uh, you know, employed, fully employed, underemployed, not working right now, retired, anything, you're a student, you're a, you're a, a full-time mom, you're doing whatever. I think this is a critical sort of stuff. So here's what it says. All true work is sacred. Oops, go back one more. There we go. All true work is sacred. And all true work were it but true hand labor, meaning even if it's just working with your hands or whatever, there's something of divineness. There's something that connects us to the divine when we do our work well. Labor, white as the earth, has its summit in heaven. Sweat of the brow and up from that sweat to the, of the brain, sweat of the heart. So all kinds of different work, whether it's with our hands, whether it's with our brain, with our heart, whatever, which includes all Kepler calculations. That's a person, his calculated mathematician guy, right? Newton's meditations, all sciences, all spoken epics, all acted heroisms, martyr, anything and everything. I don't care what it is that you do. Up to that agony of bloody sweat. If you ever walked away uh, from something, it's a, a project that's been months in the making and it just feel like you, you've said the words blood blood, sweat, and tears. I've poured blood, sweat, and tears into that job. And then look what happened or whatever, which all men have called divine. In other words, we, there, there's something about work that has the ability to connect us with a bigger picture. There's a fulfillment that comes from a job well done or work well done that almost connects us sort of with the divine. It's, um, it's almost as if, um, you know, the Christian ethic says that in, in a sense, uh, at the very beginning of the garden, uh, man was given a job description before the fall even took place, that the, that the, the, the result of the, the fall was not, you ate the apple, you got to go to work now, you're going to toil and labor endlessly and fruitlessly. But the job was given prior to that, that you were created with an innate sense to put your hands to something. Um, to to make something of it, to stand back from something. And when you've done it and when you've done it well, and when you've invested your life into it and you feel good about it, there's like a divine connection. There's there's something big about this. Um, it's been a kind of a common association between religion and faith and work. It's a conversation that shows up periodically, uh, uh, even in the the uh, sermon schedule of East. Like I feel like I've talked about this probably once every other year, a, a series on work. Because A, I like 
discussing it. And, and I think it's incredibly relevant. Very rarely do people walk away from a series uh, like this or conversations about this and be like, didn't really apply to my life. Um, I, I think that even, even those who find themselves in a non-employed situation still feel like I still give myself to things, whether through volunteerism or through raising my grandkids or through this or students. It's like, it's not a job, but I'm like trying to get good grades and I'm trying to do something. We're all we're all exerting effort towards finding meaning in how we spend our time. And uh, a common kind of association with uh, Christianity and faith uh, and work has been sort of that Puritan work ethic. Or you grew up in a semi-religious home with a mom or a dad or a grandparent who kind of was, they felt like it was their part-time job to let you leave this home with a good work ethic right? And you can hear their voice in the back of your head saying, hard work brings out, you know, good character. You're going to work hard at this. And you're like, but dad, it's just a, it's just a lawn. It's just, this is terrible. And you're like, ah, 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 it's not, it's never just the lawn, right? And you're like, yeah, it's your lawn. That's why you're saying that. But, um, it, there's there's a sense in which there, there's there's passion towards this. We're gonna when you when you leave this home, when you're out from under my care, you are going to be a productive member of society. There's going to be some value added into the world because of your existence. You're going to work hard, even if it's meaningless, because it shows reliability and perseverance. And I want you to be someone who perseveres, even when situations are futile and, and pointless and whatever, right? And so maybe that's been kind of an association with you. And, and they had some sort of, they, weirdly, they were able to connect that with faith somehow. Um, and, and maybe it was because they were just religious and it did or whatever, but there's a proverb uh, that, again, we said the proverbs were, were simply like a, a life curriculum for Jewish parents that didn't send their kids to schools. They were instructed to kind of raise them in their own way. Here's some good proverbs to live by. Proverbs chapter 14, if you're a parent, make sure that your kids, when they leave your house, know that all work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. All hard work uh, brings a profit. Not, not necessarily monetarily always, there can be profits can show up in a lot of different ways, but if you just talk about things, if, you're, if your whole you know, work ethic is, I talk about what great job I was thinking about doing, um, that's going to lead to poverty itself. It's interesting because in the last uh, two years, uh, we said, Kylie mentioned this at the, last week, the pandemic has reshaped how we do and how we operate in a lot of things. It's uh, reshaped uh, how much time we spend uh, at home. It's uh, whether that, and some of that's work related. It's reshaped how we order takeout. Um, it's reshaped uh, how we go about our business when we're not feeling uh, all that great under the weather. We kind of uh, filter this thing out. It filters. It's re- reshaped how we say no to invitations to social events. We feel more aggressive and more at liberty to be like, I don't want to go. And uh, gotten in a pattern where I just say that a lot and it feels pretty good. And I like my version of me in that way. So no, I'm not gonna go. Um, and it shapes a big piece of how we work as well. Um, and not just uh, the remote work that a lot of people are engaged in, although that's definitely part of it. Uh, but what we've seen in uh, the last year and a half with um, uh, influx of, uh, uh, of money, of funding or whatever, is this, uh, this movement called the Great Resignation. I can say the Great Resignation, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You, um, regardless of what paper and news source you read from, I guarantee this week there's going to be some sort of an op-ed on the current state of work uh, in our society because it's a big question mark. It's a big thing. It's, um, it's how, do, how do we navigating people get coming back into in-office work, um, satisfaction with jobs is, a, is at an all-time 
like like weird discussion that maybe it's never kind of been a part of before, and and sometimes that's good, and sometimes it's it's just different. There's a thing in China right now called the uh, the line flat movement. Um, it's a big hashtag uh, campaign on social media uh, where people take pictures of themselves lying flat, either watching a show, reading a book, doing something different, and saying we're tired of work. We want to like there's a, a sense in which. We, are, we uh, in the last two years, because of the pandemic, have recaptured the value of leisure, and uh, we grew up, I mean, there was a, a famous uh, a guy who talked about how, you know, based on the, uh, the, the uh, pr- progress of technology, I foresee a 15-hour work week based on, you know, we just don't have to keep this thing going anymore, right? At some point, technology is going to su- supplant all of this, and we, we will be able to have more free time to do things. And that has not come about, right? And and we're kind of bitter, and and we we we've we've had the opportunity to experience leisure, and we're like, maybe that's the fruit of this life. And so in China, they're doing this lying flat sort of movement. We don't want to return necessarily to the pace that things were before the pandemic. Um, we're we're uh, we we have that's the conversation on a national conversation that's taking place. And then uh, it's, it's been interesting because uh, when you read through some of the jobs reports and you see the people who are working on the overall economy and whatever, talking about the labor force that we have uh, based on our, our birth rates as a nation, we're not backfilling the people who are dying off fast enough. And the boomer age is only getting older, closer towards retirement with bigger nest eggs and lots of money. They want to travel. They want to go to places. They want to eat at restaurants that serve nice food. And there's just not enough workers to be able to come in and do this. And so we've got this overpopulation under workforce thing. It feels almost like this ominous collision is at head. So I feel like this is a good time to be able to talk about why do we do this thing called work? How has this changed the conversation? And if the church is essentially a gathering together on a weekly basis of us trying to discover what it looks like to live in the way of Jesus, that we look at Jesus and say, uh, we we side with Paul and saying um, he is an icon of of God. The clearest picture that we have of a God who who exists is through the person of Jesus and the teachings of the way of, and and he taught a unique way of doing things. And we can extrapolate what he taught then to how it affects us now. What would it look like to live in 2022 in the way of Jesus? Um, Would that affect how we work? And I think the inevitable answer would be, of course, it has to. you spend way too much of a chunk of your time and your life and your passion, your resources and your energy at work. Um, living in the way of Jesus should influence that to some degree. How does it do so? So in talks about rethinking the point of work, I came across a book uh, recently by a cultural anthropologist named David Graeber. Uh, I won't um, say the name of the book just because I feel like there might be some junior high students in here. We don't have junior high this service. But um, how? Ha- here's what he, he brought up. Some of you are going to get that in a second. How have... So many humans reach the point where they accept that even miserable, unnecessary work is actually morally superior to no work at all. If you grew up with a mindset, like I mentioned before, you got the voice of your dad or mom going, hard work, you know, breeds good character, you know, creates reliability or whatever. Um, He's walking through this going, there's a sense in which we continue to do work, sometimes even meaningless work, because it makes us feel morally superior, or there's a moral element. What is the point of work? Is it to be a a, a higher moral character than other people? Why do we contribute to society? Because that's what we ought to do. 
And as a cultural anthropologist, he said, here's, here's his take on it. Human beings evolved in societies that valued cooperation. People who work hard tend to be team players. So working hard in primitive societies was a costly but effective way of signaling one's trustworthiness. I'm gonna work hard because that means you want me on your team, that we're doing this together, that I'm contributing to the cause, I'm value added to this group or whatever. And as a result, our brains today are wired to perceive effort as evidence of morality, that you're a good person when you work hard. And when you work harder, when you put in more effort, that makes you more of a moral person than if you didn't. He comes up with two social experiments. He brings people into a room. He gives them two categories of people and says, which one is more, uh, which, one, oh, which one has a, a superior morality? Which one would you want to be friends with more? Which one is a better person? We all want to be good people. What does that mean, right? And he's like, Here, here's, here's exhibit A. Jeff, he says, exhibit one is the, Jeff is the medical scribe. Uh, this is the kind of person who listens to uh, audio recordings of a doctor prescribing things to their patient, and the, the doctor's talking to the thing. They replay that back in their own terms, and they type it all out so we have a paper record of what, what was said, right? Um, and I used to have a friend in high school. His mom did this, and she would work from home. She'd have a headset. She typed it. Her fingers were flying as she's doing this kind of thing, right? Um, this is a job that, based on technology now, is kind of a little bit outmoded. Technology has allowed us to, with pretty high levels of accuracy, hear where the word's being taught and transcribe it out. And so this situation was presented. If Jeff downloaded this software and got most of it right based on, on, on all of this, and he was able to kind of just like not do his job, the work gets done. He's getting paid. So he's getting paid by this hospital or this medical association to make sure that this is transcribed. If he allows this software and technology to do it, and he is able to operate and check his fantasy team while this is happening, is he morally superior or less superior than, than the other person? Then the person, uh, then the other version of Jeff who goes, I know this technology exists. I'm gonna choose to ignore it. I'm gonna do this because it's the right thing to do because I, I, I should do this. Even though it exists, an option exists, it's better. I'm gonna continue to do this. So then the question becomes uh, presented to them, which one is a, a more, a, a, a higher moral character? Which one is better? Who, who, who's the better person? Who's a good person in relation to this? Participants rated the foolhardy Jeff, the one who worked for no good reason, as significantly more moral and warmer, more of a good person, although less competent than the freeloading Jeff. He's, he, uh, he's not smarter. He's kind of dumb as a brick, but he's a good person. You know what I mean? Dumb for not like taking advantage of technology, but more moral in its character. Experience number two uh, was they were presented with people who uh, ran for a charity. I don't, know if, I don't know if it was still going on this morning, but there was a run on G-Way. They had all G-Way closed off when I, when I drove here this morning. Um, and they had different levels. I don't know if you know this. It was like you could do a 10K, you could do a 5K, you could do whatever, you know, one mile walk. And that's typical of all of these different charity events. So they presented these things to people and they said, they, there's two people. They raised the exact same amount of money. They got the exact same exposure for the charity, which was the point of why they did this in the first place. But one person ran a 5K, the other person ran a marathon. 26.2 versus 3.1. Who's the better person? No, they said, everyone in the group says, well, the person who ran 26.2 is the better person. Why? The point of the whole thing is to raise money for this charity. They both did this equally. You would think the person who did it with less effort would be more, you know, like, well, they're the smarter person in this way. Like, why in the world would you run 26.2 when you could run 3.1? That just doesn't make any sense. 
But weirdly, we associate effort with morality. Like this, this thing that we go. So, so is the is the Christian answer simply effort is morality? Is that is that what's being attached? Because this is, feels like something we would eventually grow out of, hopefully, or or we would evolve through. Or, or we're not smart enough to kind of take advantage of technology to kind of make things more efficient in this way. And perhaps a more efficient way of doing things would be more uh, more seeking. So this is an important, I think, question to kind of begin to answer uh, or begin to ask ourselves. He his. Uh, takeaway from this, this David Graeber author says, um, we fear that it has also created harmful incentive structures that reward workaholism and joyless devotion to mundane efforts that produce little value beyond the signal, the signal of effortful engagement. This is the problem that we, this is perhaps why workaholism is at an all-time high because we're signaling constantly that we're good workers based on the effort that we put in. You want me to make sure I put in 40 hours, I'm gonna put in 45 to impress you with how much effort that I'm putting on to show you how high, highly qualified I am for this position, how lucky you are to have me as an employee and all these different sorts of things. And it's this weird game that we play in this way. We're involved in signaling uh, uh, in, in, a, in a significant way. Anyways, all right. So what is then the point of work? Beyond a moral appreciation for it, beyond, uh, beyond something that just says, I work because I'm supposed to, um, I do a good job because I want to be a good person, I want to be perceived as a good employee, a, a good teammate, a good partner in this effort, I, is that it? Or, or does our faith, if, you're, if you call yourself a Christian, uh, does our faith inform it deep, more deeply than that? Is there something beyond sort of that? What's the point of work? Rethinking the point of work. To the ancient Greeks, work was demeaning. To the Greeks, work was a curse, nothing else. According to Aristotle, unemployment, by which he meant the inability or the ability to leave without having to work, was a primary qualification for a genuinely worthwhile life. A worthwhile life is not having to be anywhere, not being told what to do with anything, right? This is, they would surmise, why human beings were created by the gods of their God system. Gods created human beings to do the work that the gods didn't want to do themselves. It totally makes sense because why? I don't mow my own lawn anymore. I'm currently housing and feeding a teenager and it's working out quite well. This is why we do this. I have a teenager. I don't take out the garbage anymore. This is why we have kids, right? It makes sense. This is why this perpetuated and worked out. Uh, pervasive mindsets about work. Uh, this is, uh, if we believe in this and we're unclear, if we, if we don't have clarity of thought when it comes to the point of work, then we can fall into a couple of different mindsets as it relates to work and it can affect all, everything about it. Number one, we can think it's a necessary evil. If you've ever thought about it in this way, work that's a necessary, you just gotta, you gotta do it till you're 62 and a half or 65 or whatever the age, they keep pumping the age up on you. I know it's terrible. Uh, before you can get in social security, I, I know this, my dad just retired. He went through all this. He's, every time we'd meet, he'd be doing the math. He's like, well, it's 65 and a half, but if I wait until I'm 66, then I can do this. And he's got it all figured out. And I'm sitting here going, not even close. It's not even in my wheelhouse. I, I, I'm so far away from this. It doesn't even matter to me, but clearly he's uh, obsessed with this in this way. Right. And, and uh, we can treat it as a necessary leave. And the only good work in this view is work that helps us to make money so that we can support our families and pay others to do menial work for us. In this way, money becomes the ultimate objective. Why work? It's a necessary evil to make money, but money is what we want. We say it's because we want to be able to provide for our family and do whatever. You hear these sports guys, uh, I just want to provide for my family. At $250 million a year, I think they're going to be okay. You know what I mean? If they can't figure that out, you got other problems, bro. Um, but we do this. 
How many times have you met somebody who took a job that they didn't really want, but it paid better? It paid better. And you're like, I mean, I get it. Like you're, you, there's like this, this balance, this delicate thing that's, that's a difficult thing to, to kind of navigate. But like, it's just weird to hear somebody go through that and go, I've got a promotion that's coming up. It's going to be a lot more work. I'm going to hate my life, but man, it pays well. And I'll be able to pay that jet ski off that I never use with all the leisure time that I don't have anymore because I took this new job. It's weird. Number two, another mindset that happens, lower status or low, lower paying work is an assault on our dignity. We accept jobs we're not suited for because it just makes more sense. We, we, we apply for jobs that don't really fit our personality and it's not something that we wanna do, but it pays more money or it makes more sense because of our education. It feels like it's an, a step up on the ladder. We don't wanna step down the ladder. I mean, how many times, I, I, this was not that long ago, um, having a conversation with a guy who, who was struggling with uh, uh, a job loss. I mean, contract work, it comes and it goes, right? And, and the, the job got done and, and, and on to the next thing. And the next thing was a little harder to come by than he thought it should be. So he's navigating this, he's calling me up. Hey, I need some, need some counseling, I need some help processing through this. And, you know, for the first couple of months, you're like, hey, just keep working out. You'll figure it out. You know, you're a smart guy. You got lots of letters after your name from an educational standpoint. I'm sure things will come around. Six months turned into nine months, turned into a lot, a lot of phone calls, a lot of, man, I'm really hard pressed. And part of me began the conversation of, well, why not just go get a job at home? Why not do the Home, home Depot or do something, anything to kind of get you going on some stuff and, and, and keep you busy? so that you can stop calling me. No, just that's not why, but, <laughs> but to like be focused and to have some sort of, because it began to kind of e edge its way into sort of a depressive, like part of my ego is, is involved in this. And I, I'm feeling like I'm not wanted. And I, now I'm feeling like there's some age discrimination. Now I'm feeling like everybody's against me and I don't even want this stuff if they give it to me. It was, it was a difficult deal. And he refused, not refused, I don't want to say refused, but he would talk himself out of applying for other positions because it felt beneath him. And it was a, it was a difficult thing to kind of go, why do you think that? Why, what, what's the process? I just want you to verbalize it. I want you to talk through it and and I know that you feel it, but what, what is it about it? What makes you feel about that this wouldn't be up to your standards of what you expect for yourself? Another friend I had, we met recently too, about work stuff. Got a job during the pandemic, working from home, because uh, there was some layoff. He was um, doing some uh, a phone bank thing, phone call, whatever thing, uh, call center. Uh, but he was able to kind of work it remotely. The hours were flexible in this, and he actually loved it. He, he, he loved being able to help people who were, had been stuck on hold because nobody was answering their phone calls and he'd be able to provide some answers for them. And he goes, it was very, very fulfilling. But I got a weird sense after kind of things faded and, and life began to get a little bit more back to normal and we could go back into an office place and I felt more comfortable and, and safe doing so that I needed to go do something else. And I, I, I'm not, my personality isn't fit towards that, but I felt obligated to sort of go do that because who wants to... I, I'm more qualified than just a call center. And in my conversation, like you liked that, you liked that work. What, what is it? What kind of a narrative are you buying into about what society has to say about certain types of jobs and your qualifications for it and all of this that you're thinking, I, I can't go do this. It's beneath my dignity or, or, or whatever. This is a weird way of, and when we're unclear on why we work, then it feels like a necessary evil. It's a, it's a, the means is simply money acquisition 
and we we write ourselves off on jobs that fit our personality and our skill set more, and we just think we, we allow culture or other people to tell us what are good jobs and what are not good jobs. Western societies are increasingly divided between the highly paid knowledge classes and the more poorly played service sector, and mo- most of us accept and perpetuate the value judgments that attach to these categories. The biblical view of these matters is utterly different. Work of all kinds, whether it's with the hands or the mind, service sector, knowledge class, whatever, are evidences of our dignity as human beings because it reflects the image of the creator God in us. As I mentioned at the very beginning, the creation story, when, when Genesis shows up in the Bible, it's, it's an understanding of here's where we came from, here's who we are. This is gonna set the stage for all of humanity. This is why we exist. It's a book on origins. It's why it's called Genesis. It's, it's, a, it's meant to be not a history book, but a this is what it means to be human sort of thing. And when it talks about the role of work in this place, it says that in this creation story, only mankind, only human beings were given and set apart as, a, uh, as uh, given a job description. The plants and the animals are called only to team and to reproduce but for mankind, it was fill the earth and subdue it. Adam's, Adam's first job was to give these, and before the fall, before the apple, it wasn't like, now you're cursed to do it. Before all of that, he was told, I want you to name these animals. And I read something recently about how in part of that was begin to understand their nature. Before you give them a name, understand a little bit about them so that the name will speak highly of what they are. Because that, that's a common Hebrew thing. The, the, you know, Everybody would name their child something that they wanted them to be, that they would grow into. And, and think about that in, in like a, a modern day thing. What would, it, how would you, what would it look like for you to not name your child until they were the age like three, four, five years old until you understood their personality? Would your kids' names be changed currently? Because I know ours for sure would. We have, we have a daughter named Jovi. We love her. She's beautiful and sweet and so kind. But Jovi means full of joy, jovial, right? Jovial. She's the most introverted. If she's at a party and people are like, I thought you had four kids. We're like, we do. She's over there in the, book, in the corner reading a book, right? And what's her name? It's Jovi, full of joy. <laughs> Extrovert. Everybody likes her. You know, life of the party. And it doesn't match up. Her, her name currently doesn't match up. Maybe we're trying to call her into that and reach her forward and pull her forward into that. I don't know. But m- more, what happened was we saw Elf and one of the characters named Joby, and we thought, that's a cool name. That's what happened. <laughs> so it has nothing to do with that. But th- there's, an, there's a deep level of irony behind that. And, and what Adam's first role is, all right, invest some time into understanding these animals and then begin to give them a name that is associated or that will forever be associated with them. Like that's work. That was a job given to do. And then from directly from the, the words of God, the creator himself to these people, fill the earth and subdue it. This is, what the, this is what the understanding of human's role in the workplace was to be. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have lots of babies and then subdue the earth. Or in a lot of translations, a better translation probably is have dominion over it. Have some sort of a sense of control. Do it intentionally. You've ever been to somebody's home? It's the same square footage as your home. It may even be the same layout. You live in the same neighborhood, but they just home better than you. Like you're just better at this. You've been to somebody's backyard. It's the same amount of acres that you have, but their backyard, they have clearly had dominion over it where you mow it once in a while. That, that's a different level of experience. 
What he's, what it, the, the, the thing that is being taught to these people is go in your life and in your workplace and in creation, have dominion over creation. Don't mow it once in a while, but do it with intentionality and treatment. Run your business, manage your employees, do your job, raise your children, teach your class with dominion with intentionality so that when other teachers come into your classroom, they go, you do this so well. I wish I had some of your styles. Can I, can I cheat off of you? Can I do, and you, you watch, you'll see people copy. We, we used to, um, when I was on staff at a church in Bothell, it was, it was, a, it was a big church and we had, it, the vibe was great. You'd walk in and it was growing, it was doing all kinds of things. We would have other churches come to be like, what are you doing? What's your playbook? I swear to you, one of the questions was, where do you buy your garbage bags? Like these are, they're blue garbage, they're beautiful. Where do you get these? We wanna copy, we wanna copy this. Your copying is what we're doing. You're not copying the ethos behind why we do what we do and the, the, the subduing and, and the, we're having dominion over this space and over this church experience. But it was so weird to have that be like, I, I wanna copy, you can't copy that because this is gonna change. Those things you know, inevitably shift and change, but to have dominion over it is different, to be in control of this. A proper understanding of that is brings clarity to what is the point of work? Why is there an inherent dignity to all of work? Because we are image bearers, that we are walking in the way of the Father. So when he created man, he's having this external conversation kind of with himself and recorded for all of us or with the Trinity or whatever. And he begins to say, let us make man in our own image. These images, uh, this language uh, for, for this Near Eastern audience would have reflected on the fact that many of them would travel to different cities uh, outside of the Roman Empire. And you always knew which empire you were because uh, right when you would go into the gate of the city or in the main pathway of the city or the, the center of the village or whatever would be a statue to whatever like Caesar was in power at that time or whatever power, uh, whoever exercised authority or claimed to exercise over authority over this would be that. This is why when you drove here, you probably passed a few American flags on your way in here. You know where you're at. You know where the allegiance lies in this country, right? Uh, This would be a a sense in which Caesar would be able to look at this and say, all of this is mine. You know it, Caesar's, because his image is here. That's why the coinage would always have uh, the same face of Caesar on it as well. When you exchange money and exchange currency, when you buy and sell and go through life, never recognize who ultimately is, whose image is involved in this. And Jesus is asked the question, you know, do you have a coin? Or he asked the, the people of this question, whose image is on this thing? Who claims to have authority here? Well, Caesar, give to Caesar what is Caesar, give to God what is God's. It's, it's a question of authority in this way. We are called to be these image bearers, that when we go out and do our thing, when we do our work well, when we step back from it, and when there's glory that is brought to this, you've clearly had dominion over this. God receives glory over all of it and says, all of this is is mine, and we're proud to kind of convey this to it. It symbolized presence, and it symbolized authority. You remember as a kid, writing your name on your toys to be like, this is mine, you don't get to play with this, or if you do, it's only because I'm generous with my stuff. Or I grew up in a dorm room with three other roommates. I had to write my name on every gallon of milk and every box of cereal that I ever owned, because if I didn't, it was gone. I'd be like, mine, this is my presence and my authority. I bought this, this is for my glory, right? And by glory, I mean, I wanna eat. Um, listen, every time that we manage order out of chaos, 
I don't care what you do. Every time you create products that make it easier for other people to live, every time you care for people who are hurting, every time you put a dosimeter near radioactive waste and say, yep, it's still there. Every time that you do, that was, guys, that's funny, guys. That's really good. I, I didn't get a laugh out of first service either. And I thought, that's really good. It's still there. This is what we're doing. This is what we're investing our life into. Listen, it's not just a paycheck that we're earning. We're living out our role as image bearers of the king. And when the world is better because of our work, whatever it is, whether it's paid or unpaid, God is glorified. And he's up there going, all of this is mine. And I'm inviting you into doing this, inviting you into redeeming all of creation. And we don't have to do it. We get to do it. We get to live this out in this way. Work has dignity because it is something that God does and because we do it in his place as his representatives. Why do we work? Not to have some sort of moral high ground, not to be a better person. I just wanna be a good person. I wanna be a good person who's a contributor to society, who sees it and value add and people go, I like that guy. I like him, I like her. No, as a Christian, the scaffolding that kind of supports the foundation of our thought of why we're created is because we're image bearers that God is doing this all the time and he's inviting us into this. And we get to reflect that very, very clearly. Our work has dignity because it's something that God does and we do in his place as his representatives. So every time that we go to work, every time that we invest our time and our energy into providing food that nourishes, roofs that hold out the rain, shade that protects us from the heat of the sun, the satisfaction of meeting material needs with the desires of men and women, we're doing this. To the person who does any of this, who provides, who hammers, who nails, who, who produces, who, who, who drafts up a marketing campaign, who, who designs a, a, you know, furniture, who, who, whoever, whoever designed the bat bot and sold it, we got a picture here, whoever designed this toy and eventually sold it to somebody who paid way too much money for it, who then their kids grew out of it and then sold it at a yard sale to my son on Thursday. Thursday yard sale. You ever heard of a thing? Thursday yard sale for $4.65 to bring joy to the face of my child. 65 cents because that's what Clive had in his pocket at the time. $4 because they couldn't let it go for anything less than that. They're like, we got to do something. We paid $60 for this. You know, it was new. And this kid, man, look at the smile on this kid's face. I talked about this with my wife. I said, how great for this parent, whoever they bought it for their kid or their grandkid or whatever. And that kid grew up and is old and gone and doesn't play with it anymore. To watch Clive show up in his uh, pajamas that look like Toy Story, Woody from Toy Story, and see the bat bot with voice modulation and things that shoot things and bat wings that fly out and see his face go crazy on this thing, to see that kind of a joy... That's, that's impressive. I, I, I'm thankful for, for somebody who designed it, for who, who built it, who sold it, who did this to bring joy to somebody else. Like that kind of a work, that's all part of this creation. Perhaps we've never connected our work to something worth praising and saying that all this is mine. Perhaps you don't see our role as image bearers highly or more often enough. And the clarity of knowing, rethinking the point of work is understanding the connection between those two things. We work and live in a world that's designed at least partly for our pleasure, and the author of Genesis tells us that we should experience awe as we stand before the richness of creation, for it teems with life, and God delights when we engage in diversity and creativity and putting our hands to the work and stepping back and being proud of what we've done. Not necessarily for our ego, but that's kind of part of it, but more like on a bigger picture, that we took something, we subdued it, we had dominion over it, and God receives the glory in place of this. And God has always been in the business of creating and having dominion and showing his glory through the works of his creation. 
In the, in the book of Proverbs, there's a, a scenario where lady wisdom shows up. It's this kind of caricature of all of the wisdom of nature personified in a person, and it was in a, a, a female uh, figure, a lady wisdom. That oftentimes, is associated with maybe the Holy Spirit, so like God, um, and then, then there's like imagery of, of, uh, of the sun kind of showing up as a perfect Messiah, and then this lady wisdom, perhaps the trend, form of the Spirit showing up in kind of an Old Testament times, even though the doctrine of the Trinity wouldn't like fully come to force until after the New Testament. Anyways, I'm going way too deep on that. Proverbs chapter eight, verse 27 says this. Lady Wisdom says, I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave it sea its boundaries so that the earth or the waters would not overstep his command. And when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in the whole world and delighting in mankind, watching as creation woke up to its new creation and, and, and seeing and watching people delight in it. The, the Westminster Catechism is man is the, the, the sole purpose of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That there is a sense in which when you enjoy creation, when you engage in the, when you engage in the fruits of your labor and the selfless labor, uh, fruits of the labor of, of somebody else, when we're all doing this together, when everybody has the proper work ethic, when we see that we, we have been invested with, you know, with stewardship of a, of a certain way of thinking, a certain way of education, I have certain skill sets and desires and personalities, and I'm going to do my job to the best of its abilities, and I'm going to trust that you're going to do the exact same thing, that we both experience the, the fruits of our labor here, and God enjoys it all in the, in the process of watching his creation enjoy this. He said, all of this is mine. Look at my little image bearers going around, doing their part in creation, following up on what I did from the very beginning. And they're doing it in their own part, in their own businesses, in their own homes, with their own kids, with their own families, with their own coworkers, with the people that they manage, with the people who are, are, are above them, beneath them on the hierarchy of ladder. It really doesn't matter. But when they're doing it with passion, when they're doing it with intentionality, when they're sub subduing their workplace and having dominion over their current project, when as a retired person, they're finding their, their niche, when they're finding their thing where it's not, my life now isn't just about leisure, added leisure for sure, and well-deserved un, un, undoubtedly, but I'm doing something and I'm investing into my grandkids. I'm volunteering where I want to. I'm putting my hands to the work. So there's still something I step back from and look at and be like blood, sweat, and tears, but it was worth it. But it was absolutely worth it. We were built for work and the dignity it gives us as human beings regardless of its status or joy, paid or volunteer, employed or retired, unemployed or even underemployed. We can be open to great opportunities for work when the economy is weak and jobs are less plentiful. We no longer have any basis for condescension or superiority. If we have a clarity of this, we can ignore culture's way of saying, well, that's kind of out of your league. That's not really worth it. That's not worth your time. I'll tell you what's worth my Like I, I know what is and what's not. I know what I have stewardship of. I know what God has blessed me with. I know what it brings me fulfillment and work. And I refuse to buy into the notion that money is the, the ultimate factor in this. Nah, it's part of it, but not the whole thing. May you and I and we be able to identify with conviction and satisfaction the ways in which our work participates with God in his creativity and his cultiva uh, cultivation of creation. May we glorify God in whatever it is that we do. And also in doing so, in doing so enjoy him forever through the participation in what we do and what we get to experience. That. It's a greater clarity of work than just you should do good at your job so that you can be a good person. Don't buy into that. Come on. There's a deeper meaning there. You're an image bearer. You're an image bearer. 
And when you subdue and have dominion over your workplace and over your job and over your role and whatever it is, you're reflecting the image of your heavenly father who looks at it and says, look at that. Look at her. She's loving this, man. She's got life in her. She walked away from that project feeling fulfilled. It brings me joy to see that. We celebrate with that together. So may we, may we be the type of people who take inventory of this, who consider all of the factors. I, I want you to be paid well. I think that you should be appreciated for your work. I think money's a factor. It's, it's weird. I mean, your mortgage company still wants money for you to live and have a roof over doors and indoor plumbing and all that good stuff. So I'm not saying money doesn't matter, but I'm saying let's, let's stop making that the obsessive thing. Let's take into factor all of these things. And then how can you, in whatever it is that you're currently doing, or maybe need to shift away from and do something instead, to do it with the level of intensity and satisfaction that reflects an image of a God who created in creation and then invites his people to do the same. So may we understand that level of integration of faith and work. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is that you would help us navigate that, take an inventory of what you've blessed us with, opportunities, relationships, work relationships, um, where we live, what kind of education we had growing up, the work ethic that we were given from our parents, the one that we developed on our own, whatever it is, would you help us to take all of that inventory, figure out what it means to have clarity of work, clarity of mindset when it comes to the point of our work, and then go do and live that out in glory and for the glory of, of, uh, of you, our Father in heaven. So give us wisdom to know how to navigate that. Encourage to do something about it in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri Cities in your favorite app store.